please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5. Our attention this morning will be devoted to verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5. Each year, my dear mother, who is now 92 years old, sends me a subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine for my birthday. And as I was scanning through a recent issue that was devoted to all things football, my eyes fell upon the following most unexpected heading for an article. It said, Obituary for Jeffrey Regal, loyal Philadelphia Eagles fan from Port Republic, New Jersey, who died August 19 at age 56, relaying his final wishes. And the following wishes were Jeffrey's final wishes. Quote, Jeffrey requested to have eight Philadelphia Eagles as pallbearers so the Eagles can let him down one last time. <laughs> And I apologize this morning for bringing up anything related to football after last night and in light of the recent season. But this obituary reminded me of a concern that I have about today's sermon. I do not want to be like the Philadelphia Eagles and let you down this morning. And I am concerned about letting you down with this sermon because the passage this morning is not one that will appear immediately relevant to you for in these verses, Peter is exclusively addressing the elders or the pastors of the church. So I come to you with a mild concern about the possibility of you being disinterested in this sermon or possibly disappointed by this sermon because you don't perceive or feel this passage is relevant to you since it's not addressed to you. However, Peter expects the congregation to listen in as he addresses the elders. And so actually, I am confident that as you listen in this morning to the job description of a pastor, that you will benefit this morning. And actually, your pastors need you to listen carefully this morning as God addresses all of your pastors, and Jake and Zach in particular. Your pastors need you to listen carefully this morning because this passage can and should inform your prayers for them, your encouragement of them, and your evaluation of their service, which these men welcome. So actually, this is a strategic passage, not only for the original readers, but for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville as well. And this is no less authoritative and relevant for this church this morning. So now I have the distinct privilege of reading to you, those I love, God's Word. What I'm about to read is the very Word of God Himself kindly addressing this church this morning on this special occasion. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 
shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our outline this morning is a simple one. First, the appeal in verse 1. Then we proceed to the task, verse 2a. Next, the motive, 2b, verse 3. And then finally, the reward, verse 4. We begin, though, with the appeal in verse 1. Peter's appeal is personal. And actually, this verse forms the most intimate self-description of the author that we have in the entirety of this letter. And I must, I must draw your attention to the example of humility that is displayed by Peter's self-designation in addressing them as a fellow elder. Oh my. Listen, there are many ways this man could have identified himself because this man had an impressive resume. He had quite the background and, and, and richness of experience to draw upon in this moment. I mean, he could have referenced himself as one of the 12 disciples. He could have made some reference to witness of the transfiguration. He could have made some reference to given the keys of the kingdom by the Lord Jesus himself. And just the list goes on. But he does not assert his apostolic authority. Instead, he modestly identifies himself as a fellow elder. He can identify with them. He can identify with them in this role, and he understands the unique challenges of this role. So I imagine it wouldn't be difficult for the original pastors he addressed to receive an exhortation from this humble man who identifies himself as a fellow elder. And the one addressing them, the one addressing us this morning, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. He witnessed the sufferings of Jesus up close and personal as he observed the agony of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And he witnessed his glory firsthand as well in both the transfiguration and the resurrection. But the, the glory he references here appears to be the glory that he anticipates at the Lord's return. This appears to be a future glory he anticipates, a glory that is going to be revealed. And Jake and Zach, you must take careful note that for Peter, suffering always precedes glory. Suffering always precedes glory as modeled by Christ, but you must also realize suffering also ends in glory for the Christian and the faithful pastor. So Peter is encouraging you two men this morning to follow, follow the example of Christ, to both of you adjust your expectations of the present and the, and the immediate future, 
because both the present and the immediate future for you men will involve suffering. It will involve suffering and caring for those in this church who suffer. And he reminds you both this morning that suffering always culminates in glory. And then Peter reminds them of the sacredness of the pastor's charge, the task. Verse 2a, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, Peter is drawing from a theologically rich metaphor when he exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God. This imagery of the people of God as the flock of God with God himself as their shepherd is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and it was ultimately fulfilled on a given day when Jesus of Nazareth raised his voice and said, I am the good shepherd. So this is a theologically rich metaphor intentionally chosen by Peter. And Peter reminds the elders that they have been, listen, they have been temporarily entrusted with this responsibility to shepherd the flock of God and exercise oversight. They are two, you two men. You are called to serve, to serve temporarily under the good and chief shepherd. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure this resonates within you, and I'm, I'm sure this provokes a sense of awe in both your hearts, as well as a marveling as it should, that this morning you are taking your place. Where? Behind and under the chief shepherd himself, having been called by the good shepherd himself to shepherd, listen, the flock of God. And by identifying the church as the flock of God, Peter is reminding the elders that those they presently serve belong to God himself belong to God Himself, having been bought with the blood of His own Son. Actually, earlier in this letter, Peter made clear, very clear, the value of God's people when he wrote in chapter 1, you were ransomed. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jake and Zach, that's who you are called to serve this morning. The flock of God. The flock of God that has been ransomed by the precious blood of the Son of God. And this exhortation here was no doubt informed by Peter's vivid memory. Oh, his vivid memory of his post-resurrection encounter with Jesus where the risen Christ of the cross restored Peter to public ministry and charged Peter three times with these words, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So Peter is reminding these elders and God himself is reminding you, Jake, and you, Zach, this morning, reminding you 
that those you have the privilege to serve, they don't belong to you. They don't belong to you. They belong to another. They belong to the one who hung suspended before heaven and earth, receiving and exhausting the wrath that was stored up for sinners like you and I, exhausting that wrath so that we might be forgiven of our sins and freed from fear of future wrath. They belong to Him because of what He has done for them. So, you, you two men could not be assigned Oh my, you could not be assigned this morning a more elevated task by God himself than to shepherd the flock of God, the flock of God that has been ransomed by the precious blood of the Son of God. And let me just assure you, let me just assure this church, these two men, your entire pastoral team, they are very aware. They are so very aware. You don't belong to them. They are very aware that you belong to God. They are very aware that you have been ransomed by the precious blood of the Son of God. Your pastors are aware they didn't die for your sins. Their privilege and responsibility is to direct your attention to the one who did for the rest of their lives and while they have breath in this life. So Jake and Zach, you, here's what you're being given this morning. As you feel the weight of responsibility, and you should. Oh my, you should feel that weight. You're supposed to feel that weight. Peter wanted the original elders to feel that weight. It will serve you to feel that way. And as you feel that weight, you should also feel this. You have been given an unspeakable privilege to serve, to serve temporarily the flock of God with the very same gospel that made you, Jake, and you, Zach, a part of this flock. Oh my, what an unspeakable privilege you have been given. Listen, when your pastors read this phrase, the flock of God, that is among you in the sweet providence of God. That would be you folks. That would be you folks. When, when, they, when your pastors read 1 Peter 5, here's what happens to them. Your faces appear in their minds. That's what happens when they read this phrase. And what a sweet sight that is for your pastors as they contemplate this sacred task to shepherd the flock of God. Jake, Zach, you're to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. You're to feed them, you're to tend them, you're to care for them, you're to exhort them, you're to protect them, and if they stray, you go after them. You shepherd them primarily by preaching the gospel to them. Preaching the gospel to them and applying gospel to their lives. 
And it involves exercising oversight. You are called to participate now with this plurality of elders to look out over the flock and to discern the needs of the flock and to act for the good of the flock. So it involves attentiveness to the flock. It involves knowing the condition of the flock so that the elders might protect the flock and provide leadership for the flock, particularly in the time of persecution and suffering, which would be the immediate circumstances when this letter was written. This charge, oh man, it's a sacred one. Listen, folks, run holy ground this morning. Run holy ground this morning. These two men are being called to act on behalf of the chief shepherd. And their responsibility is precious for they are caring for the flock of God. And the sacredness of this charge, you know what? It demands the utmost care in their labors. Utmost care. So Peter then turns his attention to their motive for ministry to be to verse 3. It's because of the sacredness of the task in verse 2 that a pastor must be careful in the execution of one's labor. So in verses 2b to 3, Peter addresses the heart of the pastor, not simply the task of the pastor. So having addressed the sacredness of the task, he now turns his attention to their labor and how it must be carried out with the utmost care. He's aware. He's aware of the privilege of the task. He's also aware there's pitfalls. And so he informs the original elders of really three temptations. The task is sacred. The temptations are subtle. And it is their motives that will make all the difference in their ministry. Because it is. It is possible to be devoted to the sacred task of verse 2, to be diligent about the sacred task, but to fail in effectively serving the church and glorifying God because one's motives are not fully pleasing to God. So in order to protect the original readers from that plight, Peter cares for them by providing them with a series of three contrasts so that their motives for ministry and manner in ministry might be pleasing to the chief shepherd who called them. And here's what I'm saying this morning. If the original elders who first heard this and laid eyes on this, if they needed these exhortations, well, then I need them as well. And your pastors need them as well. And your pastors desire them. So, shepherd the flock of God. Exercise oversight. First, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Three, not this, but this. First, not under compulsion. So, it, it appears that some among the original readers who were at one time serving willingly are now reluctant to serve, are now less enthusiastic about serving, possibly considering even withdrawing from this role. Now, we aren't, we aren't told why in this particular passage, but actually the occasion of the letter and the conditions on the ground which involve escalating persecution, perhaps that's the explanation for the diminished motivation for the shepherding task that Peter addresses here at the outset. This is particularly relevant for pastors serving in countries where opposition to the gospel and persecution because of the gospel is a harsh reality. And that, by the way, is increasingly becoming the experience of the church in this country as well. 
All those serving in those countries have our deepest respect. But it is possible in any context to lose the wonder and the joy of being called to pastoral ministry. Slowly it happens. Slowly and imperceptibly over time, a pastor starts out from home making his way to the church office under compulsion. And as he pulls up to a stoplight and looks around, what's immediately obvious is he looks like everybody else headed to work. It's not how an elder's to look. Elders are to shepherd the flock willingly. As that pastor arrives at the stoplight, he's supposed to have an odd smile on his face. Odd smile because of the sacredness of the task he's been called to. And an odd smile because God wants the task carried out with a certain motive and in a certain matter. So Jake and Zach, your devotion to this church, this sacred task, it's to be done with a distinct joy. What a joy it is to remind you of what you boys are already doing. This word willingly is used in the Old Testament for free and voluntary service to God. It it describes those who embrace the will of God and do so gladly. One scholar effectively captures this when he writes, the elders are to serve not for their own satisfaction in the job, but as glad volunteers in God's service. I love that phrase. Glad volunteers in God's service. Actually, that's the call of God to all of the people of God, including the leaders of the church. We are all to serve the Lord with gladness of heart. And the writer of Hebrews makes a plea for leaders in particular to labor with joy and not groaning. In effect, with joy and not complaining. So given the sacredness of the pastor's charge, given the preciousness of the flock of God, a pastor must labor with joy and gladness. A pastor must be a glad volunteer. Pastoral ministry must be carried out in this manner. Listen, these guys are bringing a certain skill set to this role. No doubt about that. They're bringing certain gifts and skills to this role. But that's not what Peter's addressing as he lays out their job description here. Pastoral ministry does involve and require certain skills, but actually God requires that pastoral ministry be done in a certain way, done with joy and gladness. And by the way, Peter makes it clear here, this isn't just his personal preference. Did you read the little phrase following this? As God would have you. God would have you serve in this way. In light of the grand task you've been called to, in verse 2, you are shepherding none other than the flock of God. You have been called to represent the chief shepherd. He is full of joy. (laughs) And he wants you to reflect that joy. God wants happy pastors. God wants happy pastors because happy pastors accurately reflect the character of the chief shepherd and the specialness of the task to which they have been called. And actually, actually, this isn't just the sole responsibility of these two men. You as a church are tasked in Scripture with making the work of pastors a joy, Hebrews 13, 17. And by the way, let me just add, and what a joy it is to quickly add, that is exactly what you do. Your pastors are happy pastors. to to be with your pastors, and I have been with them regularly over decades. There's not a single occasion when I have been with them where I don't encounter happiness. 
They are happy pastors. Oh, there is countless times where I've thought this in my heart and said this to the Lord as I am interacting with your pastors over the past 20, how many years now? Decades. I had hair, I think, when I first came here. So this has been a long time. I know these guys up close and personal. Let me tell you something about these guys. One thing I can tell you for sure, they're happy. They love you. They love the privilege they have to serve you with the gospel. So therefore, you have made pastoral ministry a happy task. And I just want to communicate to you how grateful I am for that. But much more importantly, feel God's pleasure. Listen, in my travels over the past now, unthinkable, some 45 years in ministry, I've met many pastors who aren't happy. They are unhappy. And I've seen the effect of that on their wives and on their children. And I'm just so grateful. I can stand before you today and say, thank you for making pastoral ministry a joy in this church. These guys aren't walking around groaning and complaining. They aren't looking for other more lucrative options. No, they love serving you. And I'm so grateful that's what they're experiencing. You know what? I'm as grateful, if not more, that that's what their wives have experienced as a result. And you know what? I'm more grateful, I'm even more grateful that that's what their kids have grown up. Their children, as they have grown up in this church and as they are growing up in this church, here's what they're observing in their father. They are observing a happy man, not a man who's complaining. Not a man who's sharing how discouraged he is because the church isn't particularly supportive. No, these guys are happy and their kids are looking on and their whole perception of pastoral ministry is, hey, that's a viable option if I'm called. <laughs> It'll make as much as other people, but that's a viable option. And by the way, you do a great job taking care of them in that regard. But that's not why these boys are in pastoral ministry. So thank you. Thank you and feel the pleasure of God. Second, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now this, this actually might, this might appear uh, initially perplexing to us because normally in our country, somebody doesn't set out to pursue pastoral ministry. Why are you pursuing pastoral ministry, sir? Because of the financial benefits, man. That's why I'm pursuing it. Want to get rich. No, no, that's not why men pursue pastoral ministry. By the way, sadly, there are countries where that's a very real temptation as the ministry can be a means of financial prosperity. But the sacred task is not to be pursued as a means of becoming wealthy. And actually, I don't, I don't think we can confine this temptation to finances. So I think it has relevance, Jake, to you and Zach this morning, because I think this passage can also form a warning about the temptation, listen, the temptation to use ministry as a means of personal gain in whatever form. Temptation to use ministry as a means of pursuing personal gain in whatever form, whether it be the form of finances or as a platform for self-promotion, as a means of recognition because of title, because of position, as a means of celebrity. And I just want to assure you as a church, I'm sure this is obvious to you, that's not what these men are about. It's not why they're here. It's not what motivates them. But this warning is relevant to all of us. Instead, they are to serve the church 
eagerly. Again, that means serving with enthusiasm and energy. So here's my application of that. That means you serve with enthusiasm and energy regardless of your role on the pastoral team. That means you, you serve with the same enthusiasm and energy even if you're not the senior pastor. Even if you're not playing a primarily high-profile public role. Even if you don't preach much. Even if much of what you do is done in private in the form of counseling and discipleship. Doesn't matter. You didn't sign up for public praise. You didn't sign up for public recognition. You're just happy to serve in whatever way best serves the church as a member of the pastoral team. Finally, shepherd the flock of God, not domineering over those in your church or in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So pastors are, they are delegated a genuine authority in plurality, by the way, for the service of the church. They are to exercise oversight, but not lord it over the flock. So there's a a distinction. There's a a difference. They're they're to avoid domineering over those in your charge. And so pastors and church members are to understand the nature, the extent, the purpose of authority that has been delegated by the chief shepherd to the elders, the plurality serving the church. And personally, I, I can't improve on what Ed Clowney has written in his commentary on 1 Peter and in relation to this passage. Dr. Clowney wrote, The elder has authority. He is called to exercise a shepherd's oversight. Christ, the chief shepherd, has called him to exercise a shepherd's care. But the under-shepherd is not a stand-in for the Lord. He presents the word of the Lord, not his own decree. He enforces the will of the Lord, not his own wishes. Now your pastors are aware of that. They are aware that they are not stand-ins for the Lord, nor do they desire to be. And their intention is to preach to you the whole counsel of God, with the cross being the storyline of the Bible. That's their intention. That's their passion. Not their own preferences and wishes. And they want to serve you with their personal example. That's the distinguishing mark of a pastor. Distinguishing mark of a pastor is not title. Things from a pastor is example. Because pastors are called to be shepherds. They're shepherds who care for the flock of God by example. They're not cattlemen driving a herd of cattle. They lead by example, meaning they walk ahead of the flock, not driving the flock from behind. And you know what? I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't make at least this point or draw your attention to this. Because I... I, I I know this represents these two men and the entire pastoral team. They, they would want you to know at this point. Their example is genuine, but it's also flawed. Their example is genuine, but it's also flawed. Their example is flawed. My example is flawed. Because as J.C. Ryle wrote, the best of men are only men at their very best. So our example is flawed. It's flawed because we're not only shepherds, First and foremost, we are sheep. See, the shepherding gig, it's temporary. At the end of our lives, time's up. The sheep status is what endures throughout eternity. But though our example is flawed, it's genuine. It's in keeping with the requirements of elders laid out in 1 Timothy and Titus, or else these men wouldn't be presented to you today in this way. The under-shepherd doesn't drive the sheep. He instead walks in front of the sheep. He calls them to follow. 
leading by example. That's how pastors roll. That's how these two guys have rolled to this point. And I'm confident that's how they will serve you in the future. Finally, verse 4, the reward. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Oh my, oh my, how, how meaningful this must have been to the original readers. Original readers serving in a time of persecution, how meaningful verse 4 must have been for them as Peter unveils the eternal's perspective before them. It was meant to fortify their souls so that they might persevere in the midst of persecution. Peter assures them that a, rewards awaits, a reward awaits them, and it's just a remarkable, it's a remarkable reward, and it will result in great joy for all the sacrifices they have made shepherding the flock of God. All faithful pastors can anticipate this reward. Jake, you can anticipate this reward as you faithfully fulfill this job description. Zach, you can anticipate this reward, this moment as you faithfully fulfill your job description. And by the way, I think what is immediately striking, I think what is immediately striking is not the reward. It's who gives it. It's, it's given by none other than the chief shepherd. He doesn't delegate this. He called them personally, and therefore he's going to give out the rewards personally. He's going to bestow a crown upon those who served as under-shepherds. Now listen, the, the, the crowning of a winner of an athletic contest with a wreath placed on the head of the winner, that, that would be a familiar sight to the original readers. However, this crown... This crown was like no other crown they had observed because it's bestowed by the chief shepherd himself. And this crown does not fade. This crown does not wither. This is the unfading crown of glory. And Peter exhorts the original pastors not to lose sight of that day. Because if they lose sight of that day, then they'll be vulnerable to shepherding the flock under compulsion for shameful gain domineering. But if they keep that day in view, oh my, if they keep that day in view, they'll be happy pastors serving gladly and eagerly and serving by personal example. So Peter is bringing to the attention of you two men that though there are many joys in pastoral ministry, the greatest joy and reward, boys, comes at the end. Scripture does not ultimately anchor your joy in the immediate, but in the future. And oh, what a day that will be. What a day on that final day when the chief shepherd himself, the good shepherd himself, personally rewards ordinary pastors like us. Ordinary pastors with ordinary gifting who preach ordinary sermons who serve ordinary churches who have never been featured in some high-profile publication. Those pastors will be personally 
rewarded by the chief shepherd himself. They will not be evaluated by the culture's definition of success, but instead by this biblical job description and these men who served gladly and eagerly and head led by humble example, devoting their entire lives and families to serving the flock of God. They are going to be honored that day by the chief shepherd himself. And listen, you, you shouldn't read this without thinking, particularly if you're a pastor, how is this possible? Like, how is this possible? Being aware of my sin and weakness, how is this possible? Please help me with this. How is an ordinary pastor familiar with temptation and sin and weakness and failure? How am I to be receiving an unfading crown of glory from the holy and flawless chief shepherd? Here is how this is possible. And only because of this is this possible. Ordinary pastors receive an unfading crown of glory because the chief shepherd first wore a crown of thorns on their behalf. He wore a crown of thorns as he made his way to a hill called Calvary where his death would save from sin and sanctify the service of ordinary pastors he called to shepherd the flock of God. So when we come to 1 Peter chapter 5, we don't simply have some kind of cold job description for pastors. No, no, we see elders as those who temporarily inherit the shepherding function of God himself. And that finds the highest expression with Jesus, the chief shepherd. So ultimately what we have here, brothers and sisters, is not just an elder's job description. We got a text that points to the nature of God, his care for his people, and ultimately to the highest expression of his care in the cross. The good shepherd himself has given his life to redeem and gather a people for himself that he will shepherd himself throughout eternity. And until that day, he has given pastors to the church to prepare and to protect the church for that glorious day. And by God's grace, by God's grace, Jake and Zach pledge this morning to serve you gladly and eagerly and by example, always directing your attention to the one who died for your sins, for he will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it addresses this special moment. And thank you for all this special moment reveals. Now, Father, as we continue and proceed, I pray. I pray that Jake and Zach would feel your pleasure. I pray they'd feel the weight of this responsibility. I pray they'd feel afresh their need for your grace. And I pray they'd Feel afresh your kindness in sending your son to die for their sins and sanctify their service in pastoral ministry. And I pray this entire church would feel the pleasure of God at all that they are beholding today. In Jesus' name, amen.